Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Balkwell's Books. My name is Balkwell, and today's book is Wheeland by Charles Brockton Brown, first published in the year 1798. Now, Charles Brockton Brown is sort of the original American novelist. He's the first American to sort of make a career out of writing novels and was a supreme influence on basically every American writer to follow in the 19th century. Nathaniel Hawthorne, Edgar Allan Poe, Herbert Melville, uh, if you can believe it. So Charles Brockton Brown, he is not only an influential and the original American author, but he is quintessentially American in this sort of style and the content of this book. However, like many Americans of the time, it's very much influenced by the British tradition, and this book is following in the sort of gothic novel tradition uh, popular in England. On this show, we love to cover the masterworks. We love those books that are impeccable in style, in form, that seem totally comprehensive, cohesive, and elegant. But we also love those books that are a little bit clumsy, but very interesting in their clumsiness. And we've covered quite a few of that kind of book as well on this show. And I think Wieland falls into the latter category. I'm, I'm very generous with, with older works. Um, and I'm very generous with works that are written in a tradition or in a style or are written at a time when the expectations for a novel are, are quite different than they are today in terms of style and in terms of, of form and in terms of content. And I think Wieland immediately will strike the modern reader uh, as coming from a different time as having different sensibilities. And so we have to approach the book uh, accepting this fact and, and relishing in it, really. However, at the same time, we must recognize that even for its time, uh, Whelan's plot gets a little clumsy. And I don't normally sort of review books in this way and, and make these kind of judgments, but it's hard to ignore the fact that the plot of Whelan really falls quite flat on its face uh, when it comes to resolving the central mystery. And so it's not really a book I would recommend strongly for people to read as a, as a sort of, you know, enjoyable just little read that they can do to have fun. However, there are some very, very interesting qualities to this book that I would like to talk about. But first we have to talk about what's the book about? This is Wieland by Charles Brockton Brown. Who is Wieland? So the book is written in a, an epistolary form, in the form of, of a letter, or a series of letters, I suppose, that the, a young woman named Clara Wieland is writing, sort of relating her sort of terrible experiences she's had over uh, the course of a few months of her life. And these events involve her brother, Thomas Wheeland, and a few other 
people that they sort of hang around with uh, as young, you know they're young people living in America their their parents are dead in circumstances that I will I will get into later their parents have passed away and Thomas Wheeland Clara's brother uh, is married to a woman named Catherine who is a sort of childhood friend and they live next door to Clara so Clara lives here Clara lives in a little house and then just down the road down a little path is Thomas Wheeland and his wife Catherine and they're hanging out all the time the best of friends uh, it's a wonderful life there's another friend of theirs named Plale and Plale is a good friend of Thomas Wheeland and they love to just talk hang out have intellectual debates about many things and Clara is maybe a little bit in love with Plale and Plale might be a little bit in love with her too however Plale he's also in love with a woman in Germany who's married but then her husband's dead and then maybe she's dead and there's a lot of complicated romantic stuff going on there but more important than that to us is the circumstances of Clara and Thomas Whelan's father's death and what this means for their their lives going forward so their father like many Americans had a personal sense of religion an individual sense of religion and a personal relationship with God or the divine and this sort of took the form of a, a special type of worship and basically what he did is he built a little uh, basically like a gazebo in the backyard uh, it's not really a back you know it's not like a suburban backyard this is like an estate there's a lot of land but he built a little gazebo and every day at noon and at midnight he would go out into the gazebo and do his prayers and at no point does he ask his family to participate in these prayers and really does not take much interest in their uh, religious sense in any way he's all about his own individual uh, relationship with God and this is very important for what happens in the story now this is a, a quintessentially American way to be and and many many Americans people who came to America did so because they belonged to a religious sect where they had a, a religious understanding that did not gel well with the sort of government-sponsored religions of Europe um, definitely not Catholicism, but even other Protestant uh, Christianities like uh, Anglicanism, Lutheranism, Calvinism, they're just not good enough, you know? And you have all these little sects with just slightly different interpretations of what makes a good Christian life. This is the, the important thing. There's, importance, there's uh, differences in dogma, differences in interpretation but really the main thing is, is what's a good Christian life and how should we live uh, as individuals and as a community uh, to sort of best honor God and, and all the other things we need to do. Wieland, the senior Wieland, has sort of 
taken this to the extreme, where many of these sects would form communities where, you know, the community all worships in, in a similar manner. But he's, for him, it's personal. For him, it's just him and God. And even his family is, is outside of, of this picture, right? So one day, the senior Wheeland is sitting around and he gets a, a strange look in his eye. And he's even more sort of sullen and melancholic than he normally is. He's a very quiet, reserved, sort of sullen man. And everyone's a bit worried about him. And at the strike of midnight... He goes out for his nightly prayers and combusts, essentially. There's a big flash of light, and he's burned in a, in a very curious fashion where some parts of his body are, are, are left, uh, you know, untouched, but other parts seem to have been burned uh, in a flame. and It's just a very mysterious sort of happening, and uh, that's how he died, and soon soon after the mother dies in a more normal way but she dies as well now clara's brother thomas has taken on many of these sort of uh, he follows after his father and essentially he has that sullen reserved attitude and he has this desire for religious truth and a desire to understand what is the proper way for him to relate to God? And him and Playl, this sort of friend from earlier who has that romantic entanglement with, with Clara, they get into many debates, theological debates, uh, intellectual debates, um, about, you know, what is this good life and, 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 and what does all this mean? Playl is sort of the foil to, to Wieland in that he's a very bombastic, very sort of enthusiastic, you know, friendly guy, whereas Wieland, Thomas Wieland is, is quite taciturn. So we have these four characters sort of hanging out in their little estate. It's almost like Goethe's elective affinities. We just have these four people sort of wandering around, talking about stuff, and, you know, generally enjoying themselves. And then another man shows up by the name of Carwin. And Carwin uh, is, a, is a bit of a mysterious man. Nobody really knows what, it, what he's about. He dresses in a strange fashion, but he gets along with the other four, and they, they start to accept him as a, as, a, as a friend of theirs. But as soon as, we, as, as, soon as Carwin shows up, uh, strange things begin to happen. And these strange things take the form of the characters hearing voices, and they're hearing voices speak in their ear and sometimes threaten them, sometimes simply call them, sometimes trying to warn them about things, and these voices often take the form of each other. So Thomas is out at night and he hears the voice of his wife Catherine calling him to come home, and he comes home and says, well, you know, what are you calling me for? And Catherine's like, oh, I, I wouldn't say anything. I was just sitting here. Um, Clara also hears these voices. Um, she hears people in her closet planning to murder her. She hears a man in a, in a sort of, uh, on a cliffside telling her that 
she can only die here and everywhere else she's safe and just all these sort of weird occurrences and it's very unclear to the characters whether these voices are benevolent or malevolent or a combination of the two whether there's benevolent voices and malicious voices you know it's, it's who and who these voices truly belong to and it's a very mysterious and and it's it's quite a an effective sort of horror story during this first half because they're in very familiar very you know comfortable circumstances but these very strange things are happening that that make these very normal situations feel a little bit unsafe you know a little bit off and so you really get that that sense of the everyday sort of horror uh, during these sections. Now, as it turns out, and this is, you know, the resolution of the book that I did not think was particularly effective, it turns out that Carwin, this mysterious man, is a biloquist. Now, what is a biloquist? Uh, a biloquist is a, is a ventriloquist, like a man with a little, you can make the puppet voice, but like a wizard version. So Carwin is able to throw his voice in such a way that he can be standing like 50 feet away from someone and they hear it just over, over their shoulder, you know, like whispering in their ear. And he can perfectly mimic any voice he's ever heard. And you know, this is interesting in its own fashion, but... Um, the the when it comes to Carwin sort of explaining the rationale for for why he has done all these voices that are sort of contradictory and you know seem to be coming from many different sources and don't seem to have an, an end goal in mind and his explanation is essentially I'm a little imp you know and I like tricking people and as soon as I go into my imp mode uh, you can't stop me. I just love tricking people, you know? He's also trying to sleep with, or is sleeping with Clara's maid and doesn't want her to find out. And at the same time, he thinks, oh, I should test how brave Clara truly is and do all that make there seem to be murderers in her closet and all this stuff. It's a very sort of shallow explanation and a bit too perfect and a a little bit clumsy as well of just he goes through instance by instance of oh here's why I did that voice and here's why I did this voice and etc etc and it's a little bit like okay man like you're a weird guy cool but that's like you know a lot of the mystery uh is lost however there is something very interesting going on with what Carwin does, and this relates to the sort of bigger horror of the novel. Thomas Wheeland, who has this personal relation, or is trying to develop this personal relationship to God, hears a voice in his ear, and it tells him to kill his wife and his children, uh, and then eventually try to kill his, his sister, Clara. And he does this. He, he kills his wife, and he kills his children, and um, fails to kill his sister, but, but tries anyway. And Clara initially believes that this is more of Carwin's sort of plotting. But when she confronts Carwin about it, he says, 
that he has nothing to do with this one. That he hasn't, he, he wouldn't go that far as to tell a man to, to kill his wife or anything like that. Like, that's not, that's not impish. That's way beyond impish behavior. And the question becomes, where is, who is this other voice? What is this other voice? What is Thomas Wheatland hearing that has, that has turned him uh, into this monster that has made him do these, these terrible things? And the sort of answer is, is twofold. The answer we can glean, because it's, it's left, you know, kind of ambiguous in, in the novel, but the, the answer is twofold. Now, obviously, we have this origin of Thomas Wheeland believing that he can develop a personal relationship with the, the divine, and that relationship could involve voices. It could involve angels visiting him. I mean, that's a very common thing to happen to people who, who have that relationship to God, as they have angels approach them. I mean, fictionally, I'm not, I don't mean that happens in real life. I don't know if that happens in real life, but we, we know the stories of the angels visiting. Um, so it's, he's sort of susceptible to, to that kind of persuasion. But at the same time, we have this very corporeal or, or material sense of all of these characters have been hearing these voices. Thomas has, has heard the voice of Catherine mysteriously um, calling him. Clara, his sister, has told him of the voices she's heard that have equal times threatened and at other times actually saved her. And so through Carwin's sort of meddling, Thomas has a sort of rational basis for believing in the existence of non-corporeal voices that tell you things. And if it was just him hearing him, hearing them, that would be one thing, but he knows his sister hears them too. The ones his sister hears are, of course, Carwin, but, but because of his sister's experiences, the, the idea of non-corporeal voices is now real. You know, when just when you experience something and no one else around you sees it or hears it, that's just you. You know, that's your imagination. That's something going on with you when you can understand, okay, that, you know, that's my deal. That's my problem. Okay. But when two people, when you and another person both experience the same phenomenon, that's reality. You know, that's our criterion for what is reality. That's what we share. Everything we share that we all see um, and experience, that's what we call reality. So for Thomas Wheeland, through the meddling of Carwin's sort of impish behavior, now believes firmly in the reality of uh, non-corporeal voices appearing and telling you things. Aside from this, and this relates uh, back to the, to the former point, there are biblical... Um, precedent. There's biblical precedence for what Thomas Wheeland experiences in this novel, and that's the really interesting part here, because of course the the immediate thing that jumps to mind is the story of Abraham, and Abraham being told by God to sacrifice his son Isaac on the mountain, and. Abraham hears this command, and he 
brings Isaac to the mountain. He takes out the knife and he's ready to kill him. And at the very last second, an angel comes down and says, Good job. You followed our orders, but you don't actually have to kill him. The angel switches Isaac out for a, for a lamb, I think, or a, or a goat. I can't remember. But he switches it out for, for an animal, and Isaac gets to live. But Abraham, through this willingness to sacrifice his own son, has proven his um, commitment to God, has proven his, himself as a heroic figure. And you have to remember that this son is not just any son, that Abraham has had to wait over a hundred years to have a son, to have Isaac. And um, this is his his only thing in the world. You know, he has this son he's been waiting for that God gave him after all these years. And now God tells him to kill Isaac, and he does it. Or at least he's willing to do it, because he doesn't know that Isaac is going to get switched out at the end. And it's a crazy story. But... Abraham is the the sort of father of Judeo-Christian faith, of this impeccable faith in the word of God, that he is the sort of hero of faith. And it's interesting, it follows, of course, you know, Noah is another man who, who earlier in the Bible gets the command from God to, you know, build a boat, put all these animals on the boat, and it's like, Building a boat, you know, nowhere near the sea, putting a bunch of animals on it, it's a weird thing to do. It's not normal, and it's, you know, not easy, and it takes a lot of work, and you kind of feel like a bit of a bozo, most, you know, while you're doing it. But it's not immoral. You know, it doesn't go against your, your moral code to build a, a weird boat. We follow that up with Abraham. And he's tested in a much more extreme manner. You know, this is showing that you don't just have to follow God when he tells you to do a weird thing, or even a normal thing, but you have to be willing to follow God to do the most extremely um, unnatural thing possible. So then it goes against basically every moral code that you can imagine. You have to be willing to do this. And Soren Kierkegaard, the uh, Danish philosopher, wrote a very interesting book called Fear and Trembling about this moment in the Bible of, of Abraham sacrificing his son and what it means as a Christian to have that example touted as an as a act of heroism. As Abraham is chosen by God. He is a good guy, you know, and he's the father of, you know, you Isaac, and then Jacob, and then Joseph, all these people that are, that are looked upon by God as really good guys that he's trying to help out. You know, that's a chosen sort of family. And Kierkegaard just is trying to wrap his head around the absurdity of the true Christian heroism, meaning going against all these Christian precepts going against the very moral code of Christianity if God tells you to do it, you know? And Wieland, Thomas Wieland in this novel, faces that exact conundrum because he believes himself to have been chosen by God. He believes himself to have this personal relationship to God, just like Abraham 
and Noah do. And God tells him to do this totally messed up thing that it goes against everything he he believes in, everything everyone believes in. Everyone is going to condemn him for this, obviously, because he kills his wife and children. And um, he's willing to do it. And more so, he considers this an act of self-sacrifice, that he is willing to face the condemnation of the entire world and to lose those things he loves the most for the sake of his relationship with God. Way more than, than any of this sort of weirdness with Carwin, the, the ventriloquist, and his, you know, weird nature and his goals that are kind of nonsensical, this sort of horror of, of Thomas Wieland in this novel is what's really going to gonna stick with me. And it's a it's almost a, a it's, well, it's of course a cautionary tale. You know, clearly Wieland has gone too far in his individualism uh, of his relationship to God. But at the same time, this individualism, this personal understanding of religion is a foundational aspect of American culture, of the American spirit, you know? It is so essential to the, the culture that Charles Brockton Brown is living in. And it is, has been the cause of, of much greatness um, in terms of American art and in terms of American spiritual belief. And, and all this other stuff. And yet there's this really dark, dark possibility that lies within it. Um, that lies within this sort of emulation uh, of Abraham. And I, this book is, a, is an interesting counterpoint to that, that, not, or that book by, by Kierkegaard, Fear and Trembling. Because Kierkegaard, through it all, still sees Abraham as a hero. He sees him as the sort of quintessential absurdist Christian hero. And of course, Kierkegaard is maybe not uh, speaking his true thoughts. There. Kierkegaard wrote, among, wrote under many pseudonyms and espoused many different doctrines that are often contradictory, but, but it, it's, a, it's a very interesting book. Uh, so Fear and Trembling and, and Wieland, Charles Brockton Brown, interesting pairing. And... Um, if you are a person who's able to sort of get through a, a kind of clumsy novel and um, is able to enjoy books that are written for very different readers, really, you know, readers 300 years ago who had many different expectations, you, you, you'll, you'll find that there's m many interesting things going on in Wieland by Charles Brockton Brown. So this has been another episode of Balkwell's Books. I uh, hope you enjoyed this show. If you have any questions or thoughts relating to this book, or any of the topics covered in this episode, or any other episode of Balkwell's Books, I encourage you to write into the show. Balkwellbooks at gmail.com is the email, or you can comment on YouTube, or leave a comment on balkwell.online, which is my website, where I post primarily non-fiction essays every two weeks. If you're interested in my fiction, I have a novel called Only in Dreams 
that is available right now on Amazon. The music for the show is by Max Miller, a.k.a. Fun Bill. Thank you for the music. If you like the show, tell a friend, uh, rate or review it on, on podcast places or whatever you want to do. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.